If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 8. The first thing you have to know about chapter 8 is that it summarizes the first seven chapters. So the first five chapters were, how do we get saved? Justification is by faith, not by works. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it. Is strictly by faith. Chapter 6 was, then what? If we're saved by faith and not by works, then why shouldn't we just break the commandments? And Paul's answer was, what? Mejanoito. God forbid. No way, Jose. In my Bible, certainly not. And then comes chapter 8. <laughs> what was chapter 7? Chapter 7 was an explanation of why even after we have made our profession of faith, we cannot sanctify ourselves through the flesh, but only through the Spirit. We need to let the Holy Spirit of God lead us, teach us, and guide us, and don't fight the Holy Spirit. So we still have a tendency to want to live our way and not God's way, and that's wrong. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit who teaches us that God's ways are correct. So verse 1 says, there is therefore. See that word therefore? What does that tell you? It's going to sum up what's happened before and make an argument. There is therefore now no condemnation. That word condemnation is the same as the word damnation. No one being confined to the lake of fire. To those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's where chapter 7 was about. We have to walk in the spirit. We have to let God lead us in his ways. And not try and return to our old fleshly ways. That's where the therefore comes in. No condemnation to those who are. Whenever you see a clause who are, what does that mean? It means there's a limitation. I just heard a presentation by the Pope today to say that Messiah's blood covers everyone. And no one since the crucifixion is in any danger of being lost. Because his blood covered everyone is that what the bible says no that's not even what first one says to those who are in messiah yeshua you see what that word in means right it means more than just knows about thinks about an occasion so those who are in messiah yeshua who the who defines what they mean by in who do not walk according to the flesh. If you walk according to the flesh, you're walking in sin. But according to the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, you're walking in righteousness, in holiness. Remember before I started the recording that this is one of those verses you can tell which Greek text underlines, underlies your Bible. If you're reading from the NIV or one translated from the Westcott Hort Greek text, it omits those words who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
So they remove the limitation that this is talking about those who have repented of their sins and are walking in faith. That's going toward Catholicism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 21. It's, it's verse 2. That's not a one after it. That's the P from the line above. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What is that verse trying to tell us? Don't wait. Don't wait. Well, if everybody was saved by the shed blood of Messiah 2,000 years ago, what would this verse mean then? Answer is nothing. Nothing. Well, what this is telling us is that we must be saved by faith. And we need to do it now. Because how many tomorrows did God promise us? None. Hmm. So, believe it or not, I put in my note, so I'll do it. Let's go back to verse 1 and again ask the question of who? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that summarizes chapter 6 and 7. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Let's go back to Romans 6. That's verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And then in verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So this verse tells us that whatever confession of faith we may have made. If we are walking in sin, are we truly saved? The answer is no. That's what James was talking about with empty words. And Romans 6 verse 23 ends with the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life of Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. What does the word Lord mean? Master. It means master, the one we serve, the one whom we obey. And that's what Paul is still talking about in chapter 8, verse 1. Do you follow Messiah? Are you in Messiah? Does your life imitate Messiah? If not, work on it. And of course, in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul asks the question, Is the law sin? And the answer, certainly not. But I can remember very clearly a Messiah conference where a leading member of the Messianic Jews of America got up there on stage and said, if you're a Gentile, it's a sin for you to keep the Sabbath. It's a sin to obey the commandment of God. What does the scripture say? Is the law sin? There's that mage anointo again. And in verse 12, he reiterates, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Keep a finger here 
sorry if I'm getting a little preachy, and go to Galatians 1. You'll shortly realize, yeah, I've been listening to other YouTube preachers again. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, just think of Acts chapter 10, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So the question becomes, where does our doctrine come from? Where must our doctrine come from? From Torah, give me a verse. You said 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Yes. So let's turn over there and look. That's exactly what Paul is trying to tell us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Contrast to that, where did the Pharisees get their doctrine? They made it up. From man-made commandments. So does doctrine come from the commandments of God or from the preferences of man? If it doesn't come from God, is it pleasing to God? The answer is no. So as we come back, that's what Paul's trying to get us to focus back on. And Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you want to stand before the Lord on judgment day and hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Whose doctrine will you have followed? His, the doctrine that comes from God. Do you see why the NIV removes that? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. Does this mean the Torah has been abolished? No. It means that I no longer have to live in sin. When I was baptized into Messiah, saved by faith, then that hold that sin had on me that I couldn't break was broken. I died to sin. That's Romans chapter 6. I died to sin. Now I can live for God, not through the fleshly body, but through the Holy Spirit that he's given me, that gives me power. What did the scriptures say in the book of Acts when the apostles wanted to know, is it time for the kingdom? Let's go look. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. They wanted to know, well, Messiah now bringing the kingdom. And they were told, hey, hold on, hold on. Verse 8. We'll start in 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. 
But then the next verse says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So in our fleshly bodies, we cannot understand the times and seasons. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we can understand God's timing and God's purpose in the first and second coming of Messiah. Why didn't he just accomplish everything the first coming? Because we weren't ready. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. I no longer have to live in sin. Is that just a New Testament concept? Or is that in Deuteronomy 30? Let's go back and see if we can find it in Deuteronomy 30. Verses 15 to 20. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Or you could have translated life and good, death and bad. Because it was the tree of good and bad. I don't know why they call it good and evil. I guess it sounds better. Or maybe somebody copyrighted it. In that, what does in that mean? means here's how. I command you today to love the Lord your God. You cannot please God unless you start with what? With love. To love the Lord your God. To walk in his ways. If you do not walk in his ways, according to him, you do not love him. I hear all kinds of people t- today say, I love the Lord with all my heart, but I'm not going to do any of the commandments. God says, then you don't really love me. To keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply in the land your God will, the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life. It's not that God doesn't care which choice you make. He cares. He just will not force you to make one decision or another. And that's important as we study chapter 8 of Romans because that's where a lot of churches get a doctrine called predestination, which says... It's not up to you or I to be saved. God picked all names from a hat or lottery balls or wherever he did it. He decided for the creation of the earth, you'll be saved and you won't. And there's nothing you can do not to be saved, nothing you can do to be lost. We're going to find out in chapter 8 that's not what it says. It says, therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. 
As we study Isaiah tomorrow, we're going to see that that promise of the land goes on into the millennial kingdom and into the new heavens and the new earth. So we have a choice whether to sin or not. And God will not take that choice from us. He tells us right here in Deuteronomy 30. It's up to us. But he encourages us to choose life. Back to, do, uh, to Romans 8. We're up to verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. Was there a problem with the law? No. The problem was in our fleshly bodies and minds, we couldn't keep it. It was weak through the flesh. God did, that is, he did what the law could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So by being sinless and perfect, tamim, without spot or blemish, he condemned all of those who had sinned in the flesh except for those who had put their faith in him. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see that same clause that you see up in verse 1. What does it mean, who do not walk according to the flesh? It means who do not walk in sin. But according to the spirit means those who walk according to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Without the spirit of God, I can do nothing. So what did Messiah call the Holy Spirit in John 14? Our helper. Let's go look at John 14. Our helper. He didn't just give us the Holy Spirit as a prize. As, as our helper. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So why can't the world receive the Holy Spirit? Because it does not know God. It does not know Messiah. It knows only sin. And of course, it's John 17, 3 that says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah, whom you have sent. And then 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 tell us, How do we know that we truly know him? We may as well go over and look at it so our notes are complete. First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 
Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Don't those words just break your heart? Don't you know so many people who claim to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, and yet they believe the law has been abolished and the commandments are not for us? Let's go back to Romans 8. Verse 3. The law could not do what? The law could not save us. Why? Because our flesh was weak. What is the wages of sin? Death. So as much as we might have tried in our earthly bodies to walk upright, we were never going to make it because the flesh is weak. So how did God overcome that? He sent his only begotten son to die for us, to take that penalty upon himself, to pay the price for those sins we committed. When we turn to God in faith and accept Messiah's death in our place. And then the question that Paul asks in chapter 6 is, then what? Will we continue to walk in sin? No way. Uh-uh. If you're Living in the Holy Spirit, you cannot live a life of sin. Did John not tell us that too in 1 John? Let's go up to 1 John. Again, John writes after the other apostles are gone. He's trying to get people back on track. He says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, what's it mean to walk in darkness? To walk in sin. He says we lie. We do not practice the truth. Look in chapter 3 of 1 John. Well, let's look at the last verse of chapter 2. That's verse 29. Then we'll get to 3. If you know that he, Messiah, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of salvation through Messiah, purifies himself just as he, Messiah, is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse, seven, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Do you get the flavor of what the New Testament is trying to tell us? I grew up being told that the laws have been abolished. They're not for us to do that we were saved by Messiah, now we can do anything we want to do. Is that in the Bible here? Is that what we're seeing? It is not. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, meaning that's what they want to do. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
We've been talking about the things of the flesh, the things of darkness. These are things of sin. Let's look at the Bible's descriptions. Go to Galatians 5. What things characterize walking in the flesh? Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Verses 19 to 21. Paul wrote this, and he gets right to the point. And Galatians is one of the books that people hold up and say, See, see, we're supposed to break God's commandments. What? Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. What does the word evident mean? Obvious. Easy to see. Which are, first, adultery. Second, fornication. So adultery is sex outside of marriage with another man's wife. And fornication is sex outside of marriage with a woman who is not someone else's wife. Uncleanness. So is eating pig a work of the flesh? It is. Lewdness. What's lewdness? Dressing scantily to entice others into sexual immorality? Yeah. Idolatry. Look how far down the list idolatry is. Sorcery, that's pharmakia in Greek. That's drug abuse. Includes witchcraft. Hatred. What does the scripture say? If you hate your brother, you're not saved. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Heresies. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. What does and the like mean? This is not a comprehensive list. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when you look at Andy Stanley's new book, who says murder is no longer a sin... Does that correspond to what Paul's teaching us here in Galatians? Or does it contradict it? Contradicts it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Messiahs have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's look also at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. In him that is in Messiah, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is, if you've been saved by faith, you are circumcised of the heart. 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Messiah. Which means when you got saved, you put away the sins that you were committing before. You turned away to a new life. Buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, that is, the sins that we had committed before we got saved. Messiah paid for all those. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Did he nail the commandments to the cross? No, he nailed the judgment, the wages of sin, which is death. In 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 4. First Peter chapter four verses one to four. Therefore, since Messiah suffered for us in the flesh, that is he paid that wages of sin for us. Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Others, we should take a mind of we have no more desire to commit sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Do you see anything there that says, so, so let's do it again? No. Nothing. Back to Romans 8. Verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What does it mean to be carnally minded? To live in the flesh, to be fleshly minded, to live in sin. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Not the portion about the rapture, but the portion that comes before it. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Yeshua that you should abound more and more. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So verse 1 means what? More and more you should be walking in a way that's upright and pleasing before God. That should be our heart's desire, to please our Abba, to please our Father. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Yeshua. Paul wrote this to Gentile believers. 
And he commanded them to keep the commandments. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification comes from the same word as holiness. Means to clean the sin out of our lives, to be separated unto God. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness. But in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man but God. Who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Anything there that says go ahead and walk in sin, it's okay with God? Nothing. So back to Romans 8. To be carnally minded is death. So can one who is truly saved be carnally minded? The answer is no. That's one of the clear indications that they are not saved, even if they might think that they are. But to be spiritually minded, that is to have a great desire to follow God because of your love for God, is life and peace. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, enmity is hatred that separates. The carnal mind rejects God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So what does that mean? Before we get saved, is it possible for us to please God? No. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what Romans 7 was about. It's not through my fleshly body that I please God. I have to walk in the spirit of God. Continuing with that thought, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith. That is to be fleshly minded. It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What does it mean to diligently seek him? Is that to be lukewarm? To casually walk down the road of life and see if we stumble across them? No. To diligently seek him is to love him with your whole heart so that it is your heart's desire to please him, to walk in his ways. Go to James chapter 4. Just a few pages in. James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5.
adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Ooh, that goes back to Deuteronomy 30. You've got to choose one or the other. Why can't we have both? That's called lukewarm. And what do we learn in Revelation chapter 3 about lukewarmness? Not good. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And it comes down to verse 7. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded, same as lukewarmness. And that was Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Let's turn to Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. Where he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I was trying not to say that on the tape, but I just did. Chapter 3 of Revelation, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What does he mean in verse 15? I could wish you were cold or hot. He means choose one, right? Just like Deuteronomy 30. Choose one. You can't choose both. Will you follow God or will you follow the path of sin? You can do either. God will let you do either. But come judgment day, there's consequences to sin. Back to Romans 8, verse 9. To purify your heart, that's the same thing as sanctification. That is, clean out the sin. Back to Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if. There's the if. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. How do we know if the spirit of God dwells in us? That was John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments and... I will pray to the Father and he will send the helper. So if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Messiah, he is not his. Now wait a minute. Here is something very important. The Holy Spirit is described in this same verse as the spirit of God and the spirit of Messiah. I want you to notice the Holy Spirit is described both. So is he the spirit of God or is he the spirit of Messiah? Both because Messiah is God. I only point that out because I still hear from a lot of people, the Bible never says Yeshua is God. Yeah, it does. We just have to read it a little more closely. Verse 10. 
and if Messiah is in you. Why isn't Paul judging these people and telling them whether Messiah is in them or not? He's never been there. He's never met them. Remember, this is a letter to a church where he's never been. So he's letting them do a self-examination. And if Messiah is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Means you were baptized with Messiah, you died with Messiah in the baptism, you are dead to sin. It no longer has hold over you. But the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Messiah, the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart is life because of righteousness. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, then you will want to walk in righteousness. If you're truly saved, that's going to be your heart's desire. What did Messiah say in John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. He said, and if you don't keep my commandments, it's because why? Because you don't love me. Oh, this is tough stuff. Verse 11, but if, there's another if. If the spirit of him, that's God, who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then you have eternal life. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of this, let's draw an application based on what we have just read. Therefore, brethren, who's he writing to when he says brethren? Believers. We are debtors. What's a debtor? We owe something. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So we don't owe sin a thing. Hmm. Let's look at that word debtor a little more. Let's go to Galatians 5.3. So when Satan comes to you and says, you need to do this sin, how do you respond? No, we don't. Get behind me, Satan. Galatians 5.3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. I wanted specifically to talk about this verse. Does the Torah command Gentile men to be circumcised? The answer is no. The rabbis demanded that the Gentile males be circumcised in order to be saved. Because they taught salvation is by circumcision, not by faith. So Paul's saying here, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised to earn salvation is what's implied there. The reason they become circumcised is to earn salvation. So he's a debtor to keep the whole law, and he can't. No one can. 
So that's what these Gentiles were being taught by those who came from Jerusalem after Paul left them. Is that Paul taught you wrong. You're Gentiles. He must not have known that. You've got to be circumcised and become a Jew before you can be saved because God can't save Gentiles. And Paul's saying that's nonsense. It's contrary to the scriptures. It's contrary to the prophecies of God. It's contrary to the nature of God. Who does God save? Those who come to him by faith, right? Uh huh. Those who come by faith. Acts 15.1 describes that for us if you've never seen it. I'm sure everybody here has. I'm not sure everybody listening on the internet will have. So let's look at Acts chapter 15. Oh, actually there is a commandment in the scripture to be circumcised of the heart. There's just not one to be circumcised of the flesh. The flesh is a picture a prophecy of circumcision in the heart. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says, And certain men came down from Judea, they come from Judea to Galatia, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they honestly believed and taught that salvation is by circumcision. And they don't cite the law of Moses because that's not in the law of Moses. They cite the customs, which mean the man-made rules and regulations. Let's look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to make sure we get a full view. 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 19 and 20. A debtor is one who owes somebody because a price was paid. And this is what tells us who paid the price. How do we become a debtor? Verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own for, for means because, you were bought at a price. That's how he became a debtor. What price was paid that you and I might live? The death of Messiah. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He bought it. He paid for it. We're a debtor to God. We are not a debtor to sin. What did sin ever do for you? Nothing. Hello, Amos. Back to Romans 8. That was verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So who are we debtors to? Debtors to God, to live according to the Spirit. For we are bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Verse 13 says, for, because, here's here it is. If you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. He's talking to people who claim to be saved. 
He says, if you live according to the flesh, that is, if you walk in sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What's it mean, the deeds of the body? The sins. Yep, the sins. So how can you summarize verse 13? Repent or die. Now, right here, people will jump in and go, Wayne, 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 Wayne. Oh, come on. You're trying to make us look like we're living like Jews. We're supposed to live like Gentiles. Is that what it says? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or perverseness of their mind. If we are not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, that means our lives need to change. If the Gentiles are walking in sin, that means we need to stop walking in sin. If they're breaking the commandments of God, it means we need to stop breaking the commandments of God. Back to Romans 8. We're up to verse 14. Verse 14 begins for. What does for mean? Because. See how many therefores and fours we have in this chapter? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You want to be a child of God? You must be led by the Spirit of God. And these are the opposites. You can be led by sin or you can be led by the Spirit. Let's look at some other verses that talk about being children of God. Go to Galatians 3.26. Galatians 3.26. And we'll go through verse 29. For you are all sons of God. Remember the original in the mind of all the apostles is Hebrew. The word sons can also be translated children. So don't let gender concern you. So for you are all children of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah, which means you will live like Messiah lived, walk as he walked. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Messiah Yeshua. People do all kinds of stupid things with that verse. It simply means there's only one way of salvation. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a man or woman, slave or free, there's only one way. And that way is through Messiah. John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
So verse 20 says, and if you are Messiahs, that is, if you have been saved by faith, the Messiah's completed work, then you are Abraham's seed. What does the word seed mean? It means descendant. The descendant of Abraham, meaning all the promises made to Abraham flow through you. And heirs according to the promise. What was Abraham promised? Eternal life through Messiah. Possession of the land. All those things. All those promises flow. Doesn't matter who your earthly parents are. It matters if you have been saved by faith in Messiah. Staying in Galatians. Go to chapter 4 verse 6. And because you are sons or children. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Again here the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of his son. Our Messiah Yeshua. Crying out Abba Father. How many of you realize Abba is not Hebrew? Abba is Aramaic. The Hebrew is Av, which means father. Abba means daddy. It's a more intimate term that was borrowed from the Aramaic to make it an even more loving, personal sound, even though they both mean father. So if you are a child of the true and living God, the Holy Spirit lives in you and cries out, Abba, Father. What does a loving child want to do but to be obedient to a loving father? In 1 John 3.10, which I realized we were there a few minutes ago, but in my notes I have it again, so let's just look. How do we determine a child of God from a child of the devil? It tells us in no uncertain terms in 1 John 3.10. The word manifest means obvious. Obvious to the most casual observer is a phrase that I used to use a lot. Never knew what it meant, but I used it a lot. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. This is how can you tell one from the other? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. What happens to those who are practicing lawlessness? Messiah says, depart from me, I never knew you. So Matthew seven twenty-three is completely in agreement with 1 John 3, 10. Revelation chapter 21. Let's look at the last book of the Bible. Not the last chapter, but the last book. Then maybe we'll look at the last chapter. Why not? We're there anyway. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8. He said to me, 
it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, but in Hebrew that's the Aleph and the Tav, and that's very significant. If you remember Daniel's teaching on the Aleph Tav, if not, I would recommend you listen to it. The beginning and the end. Those are words in Isaiah that refer to God. And here Messiah quotes them. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Of course, he who overcomes is 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. How do you overcome? By faith. And then faith causes obedience. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, again, there's pharmakia, idolaters and all liars shall have their parts in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It just tells us in scripture over and over again that if you're walking in sin, you're not saved. And yet somehow that message has gotten lost. I said we'll add Revelation 22 verses 12 to 15. Because it just reinforces the same thing. Verse 12 says, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Why does it say according to his work instead of to his words? Yeah, what gives away how we really believe is not what we say, but what we do. Do we follow the commandments of God or don't we? I mean, Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter through the gates into the city. If you've got a Bible based upon the adulterated text, verse 14 will read, Blessed are those who wash their robes. That obscures the fact that those who are believers will keep God's commandments. Verse 15 says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and practicers, idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. So all of that is consistent. What do they, what do they mean by dogs? The word dog there refers to male homosexuals. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back to Romans 8. That's actually a term used all the way back in the Torah for those kind of people. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. We're not slaves. We're children. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There's that Abba again. Daddy. Who obeys the father, the slave or the child? Both do, but for different reasons and motivations. The slave out of fear, the child out of love. Which does God want us to be? The one who loves him. 
Do we look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7 yet? If not, let's do it now. Nope, we have not yet. Paul talks exactly about this. He explains it more. So he doesn't repeat it all in Romans. He just makes reference to it. Galatians 4.1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, meaning below the age of maturity, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all, meaning both must obey the father. But is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Those guardians and stewards there are for the child's protection. To make sure the child makes it to maturity. It says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Doesn't matter if you're born a Jew or a Gentile. We were a slave to sin. Messiah died that we might be set free and become children of the true and living God. Back to Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is, you shouldn't have to wonder, am I a child of God or not? The Holy Spirit inside should be telling you that you are. And that because you're a child of God, you need to live like a child of God. But I know a lot of people who think they are a child of God and are saying that they are, but no evidence. Yep, and if you look at Matthew 7, how many people are going to be so shocked when they come to Judgment Day and say, but we did all these things. They really believed they were saved. Did that make them saved? It did not. Let's go back to Matthew 7 for a minute. Two of the references Messiah made have really been weighing on my heart this week. One was the reference to the days of Noah and one to the days of Lot. And it made me think about Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Which say, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. But everyone in verses 13 and 14 think they're on the road to heaven. They think they're saved. And how does God describe those who are on the broad road? Many. Those that are on the narrow road? Few. Then if you think back, whenever prophecy teachers talk about the days of Noah, they talk quite appropriately about it was full of sin and the world was full of violence all that's true but how many people got on the ark eight 
Noah's wife, his three sons, and their wives. Out of all the world, and we don't know how big the world's population was. It wasn't billions back then. It wasn't very big at all, I'm sure. But only eight were saved. And when we come to the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah was terribly sinful. They deserved God's judgment and God poured it out. But how many people were delivered? Three. Out of all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, again, we don't know how many there were. But both just illustrate that the majority were not on the boat and were not in the mountains. The majority perished. It was only the few who were delivered. That's been keeping me up at night. Because if you listen to most of the prophecy teachers, they say the two billion of us are going to go in the rapture. Is that few? Hmm. Not my definition. But in verses 21 to 23, Messiah says, the reason so many are on the broad road is because they've listened to false teachers who taught them wrong. Verse 20 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But they call him Lord. What does Lord mean? Master. Master. They call him Master, but they don't obey. It says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? They'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. But you can see in verse 22 the pain, the shock. But I thought I was saved. And boy, I sure hope that one day I'll open up and and Messiah verse 23 will say, well, then that's okay. But I haven't seen that yet. Always, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Everything I'm reading in Romans tells me that that is in agreement with what Paul taught. So let's go back and see what Paul taught some more. Romans 8. We're up to verse 17. And if children, if you are a child of God, then heirs. What's an heir? An heir inherits. What does Messiah inherit? Everything. They've shown that heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah. If he inherits everything and we're joint heirs, what do we inherit? Everything. If, oh, there's another if. Indeed, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Can we skip that part? Yeah. Would be nice, but what's he talking about? He's talking about when persecution comes, will we deny the Lord and turn away? Or will we stay strong? You've seen the pictures on TV of the guys in the hoods kneeling before the executioners with the swords to their throats saying, renounce Messiah or die. We have got to be strong enough to say... Swing the sword. 
Yeah, so far, praise the Lord, we don't face that here in this country. We just get a lot of, what's the best way, what's that? Lip. Lip, yeah, we'll put it that way, a lot of lip. <laughs> you guys are trying to earn your salvation. No, that's not possible. It says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So why don't you keep his commandments? What answers do you get? We do. Yeah. yeah, we just don't keep the law. Yeah. Well, Jesus only said to love. But that's not the way they've been taught. I just hear, yeah, all I hear is that's not what my church says. Yeah. I hear that's not what the majority says. After all this history, why have we gone to this? And you're right. You're right. The majority are on the broad road. You want to go join them? Not to me. Mm -mm. In fact, that's precisely what the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama, told me is, look how big the church is. We must be right. Did you, did you show uh, that verse in Matthew? Oh, <laughs> it was about two sentences later. He said, why don't you just get out and go to seminary? Leave me alone. Okay. If, okay. We must, must avoid sin. Verse 18 to 20 go together. So let me pull these notes off and we'll read them and then we'll come back to Genesis chapter 3. Verses 18 to 20 say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time meaning this present age, the age we're in, and Hebrews call the Olam Hazeh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The entire creation of God is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Paul wants us to remember it's not just people that look forward to the messianic kingdom and the age to come. In Genesis chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15, God addresses the serpent. In verse 16, he addresses Eve. Verses 17 to 19, he addresses Adam. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Whose voice should he have heeded? God. And have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Before Adam and Eve sinned, the Garden of Eden produced bountifully. Didn't take a lot of work. Anybody ever been a farmer? Yeah, it's not easy. It's because of this. 
Verse 18 says, Both thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The ground itself was cursed. And Paul reminds us that the earth itself is looking forward to the messianic kingdom. The age to come. When there won't be death, there won't be killing, there won't be such effort to bring forth from the earth. All of creation looks forward to that day. Animals too. Animals' natures were changed at the fall and will be restored such that the Bible says that a little child's going to lead a bear and, and other wild animals down the street. So then how does that interact with the sacrifice, sacrifices for the... <laughs> Got to explain a little more. Okay, so... In the, in the Messianic kingdom, there will be sacrifices. Okay. But after that, then there will not be sacrifices? When we come to the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible doesn't tell us much about it. Okay. So for a lot of that, we're just going to have to wait and see. So the Bible's got 700 pages on now and two pages on then. Simply a lot not told to us. Okay, verse 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That is, that curse we just read about is going to be lifted. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 10. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 10, to tell us what it will be like in the kingdom. Says the wolf, whoops, we're not there yet. Let me give you a moment. Don't let me get ahead of you. Isaiah 11, verse 6 says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. What happens today if you put a wolf and a lamb in a pen? Have a happy wolf, yeah. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. Entirely different nature in the animals. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lions shall eat straw like the ox. I still think that's hay and not straw, but we'll see. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. How would that go today? Not well. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What is the mountain referred to in prophecy? The kingdom, the messianic kingdom. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's that? That's Messiah. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. I want to go there. 
Back to Romans 8, verse 22. For, for means because we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Birth pangs. Where have we heard that word before? Hmm. Let's start this search in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Brethren, brethren, join in following my example. What's that mean? That we should walk like Paul walked. How did Paul walk? Like Messiah walked. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often. And I'll tell you even weeping that they're the enemies of the cross of Messiah. So many who call themselves believers back in Paul's day were not walking like it. Whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things, to himself. So it's not just the earth and the things in it that are groaning and looking forward to Messiah's coming, but it's our bodies too. Our citizenship is in heaven. We want to see the Lord. We want to be transformed. We want to see that eternal life to which we are promised. Go to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25. Isaiah 65, verse 25. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And somebody will say, didn't we just read that? No, we were reading from Isaiah 11 before. God must really mean it. Psalm 48, 1 to 6. Psalm 48, 1 to 6. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What's the city of our God? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In his holy mountain. 
beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king. So what time period is this talking about? The messianic kingdom. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away, for fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. So this birth pangs here that precede the establishment of the Messianic kingdom are referring to the tribulation period. Yeah. That's when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Jeremiah 48 also talks about the birth pains. What do we know about birth pains? The minute they start, the baby's born, right? Oh, don't you wish. Before the actual birth pains are the Braxton Hicks. So even before the day of the Lord, we will see these signs that are called birth pains that will be increasing in frequency and intensity. And they continue into the tribulation period until the time that the child is born. Do I think we're past the Braxton Hicks? I think we're at the very end of the Braxton Hicks. If you look at this black and white chart up here, plotted across the bottom are natural disasters like volcanoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. And you see how flat the line is until we get right up to about where we are and suddenly you see a sigmoid curve. Jeremiah 48, verse 41. And we'll stay in Jeremiah for a moment, so don't close after this. Jeremiah 48, 41. Kiriot is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pain. Referring to the tribulation period. And in chapter 49 of Jeremiah, verse 22. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Bozrah. Bozrah is in Edom. Isaiah 63 is all about the destruction of Edom and Bozrah in the tribulation period. The heart of the mighty men of Edom in that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. Again, describing the tribulation period as being like birth pangs. Then we have Micah chapter 4. Hey, wait a minute. Micah chapter 4 is about the establishment of the millennial kingdom. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 are like uh, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 to 4. But... Verses 6 to 10 describe the tribulation period before the kingdom gets established. Verse 6, in that day, says the Lord, what day? In the Lord, I'll assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those I have, whom I have afflicted. I'll make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. 
And you, O tower of the flock, that's Migdal Ader, that's where Messiah was born. The stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Zion is Jerusalem, the daughter is Bethlehem. To you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So before we come to the Messianic kingdom, there's going to be a lot of birth pangs to be suffered. Yeah, that's what I've been told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you mean to start saying, why did I think this was a good idea in the first place? I don't know. 1 Thessalonians 5. Even in 1 Thessalonians 5, the New Testament, the tribulation period is described as like the birth pains. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So those labor pains again are describing the tribulation period. And what did Messiah say in Matthew 24, 8? Let's go back and look at Matthew 24, 8. I don't know why people get confused, but there's nothing about the rapture in Matthew 24. And when people try and make it about the rapture, they go all astray. In Matthew 24, 8... We have seen four seals opened. Verse 5 is the first seal. Verse 6 is the second. And verse 7 is the third and fourth. It says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows in Greek is odin, which are birth pains. So the beginning of the birth pains are the first four seals of the book of Revelation chapter 6. Corresponding, of course, to the tribulation period's opening. Back to Romans 8. We're up to verse 23. Not only that, we also have, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Called the first fruits of the Spirit because these are the early believers. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What are we waiting for, groaning for? Our new bodies with no pain, no death. 
Those of us that are getting older, we look forward to those new bodies. The day when you go by a body shop and not scream liar out the car door. Remember Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That promise is fulfilled and comes to fruition when our bodies change, as described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about resurrection. And I want to look at, if we have time, verses 42 to 55. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So like it's talking about like a grain of wheat goes in the ground and then dies, but becomes then a stalk producing much wheat. So our body is sown in corruption. It dies, it degrades, but we're raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body... And there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Messiah, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, a sowed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's another term for what? The Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or Sheol, where is your victory? In other words, we're not there yet. We are still waiting for and looking forward to our bodies being changed into something immortal, incorruptible, something that won't suffer pain and death. And I tell you, I look forward to it each and every day. And we've run out of time. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 8, verse 24.